Have you ever wondered what it's like to witness a murder? Forrest grabbed the knife and then just stabbed Johnny in one motion. Or how it feels to be shot. I was immediately hit by a barrage of bullets. Or how you would react if your spouse hired someone to kill you. And he was to put me in a grave with a bullet wound on my head. These are the stories you'll hear on the podcast called What Was That Like? True stories told by the actual person who went through it. You'll hear from a stalking victim. Came back upstairs and when I came back and turned the corner into my room, I saw him standing there. You'll hear from a man who was kidnapped and tortured. I would do anything, say anything, to simply get away. And you'll hear actual 911 calls. Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Take a deep breath. Oh my God! Real people in unreal situations. Search for What Was That Like on any podcast app or at whatwasthatlike.com. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Please take care of yourself. Fruit Loops episode 204. Thank you so much for listening. Yeah. Bienvenidos, bitches. And let me tell you about Fruit Loops. It's a <laughs> podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and those who are othered and the victims. Because contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight, cisgender, able-bodied, white dudes. That's what? right. These crimes rarely get any public attention because tell them why, Beth. No, don't do it because that's my job. <laughs> the news is racist. Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy, a black Latinx woman. And I'm Beth, and I just happen to be white. She is one of the good ones. She's a, <laughs> yes, an ally. <laughs> We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists, just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Andre Crawford, a black man who was responsible for the murders of 11 women in Englewood, Illinois, in the 1990s. But before we get into it, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. I'm good. I don't have anything really uh, to report, nothing exciting going on, which is fine. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to believe you until you went on ahead and said, no, it's which fine. Is fine. I'm glad. I'm, fine. I'm glad. Thank I'm very you. glad that there's nothing going on right now. <laughs> okay, friend. <laughs> Your voice does sound good, though. Well, thanks. Light. Light and yeah. airy. Yeah. Ready to record. <laughs> How are you doing? I'm great. So this week was hip hop's 50th oh, birthday yeah, 50 years right. ago. Yeah, hip hop air horns. 
hip hop was created in New York. And in New York City, they had a big celebration. Lauren Hill was there. I couldn't nice. make it to New York. But the Dirty Dirty South has a very, very rich hip hop history. Yeah. You know, there's different regions across the country and a different sound in each region. And you can kind of tell who's from where based on their cadence, oh, cool. the language, etc. But in Atlanta, which is a big hip hop spot, there was a free celebration Ooh. that the mayor put on. Nice. We took the kids. It was an all ages like music festival. And it was so fun. Goody Mob wow, was that there. That's awesome. Yeah. Goody Mob. That's CeeLo's group. Earth Gang and Jermaine Dupree. <laughs> He um, has been in hip hop since I since I was a Criss Cross fan in the early 90s. He <laughs> discovered Criss Cross and used to date Janet Jackson. But he was there and my daughter was like, um, who's that short man on stage? Because <laughs> Jermaine Dupree is very short. She goes, uh, he's a short king. Said, yes, girl, he is. And then um, the king of the South was there, T.I. So it was just it was just a lot of fun. Just yeah, it sounds music awesome. is underrated. And if you can take your family to like a music festival, that's a good way to get your kids into like the music, the live music experience. And, you know, I hit 10,000 steps on my pedometer just walking my kid to the bathroom so (laughs) many potty breaks so many (laughs) anyway it's a great time that sounds awesome yeah (laughs) Yeah, thanks all right let's get into some listener letters well hello angels (sighs) thank you Mm -mm. what's in that bag beth full bag this week yeah, we got a full bag this week. I wanted to say thank you to Ardent Armadilla, oh, Erica, uh-huh. Diva 12-19-1995. Okay, okay. Fishbone Wife. All right, specific. And Real Bad Donkey for your positive reviews. Yes, thank yeah, you. Yeah, thank you so much. Hip Hop Air Horns to all of you. It really helps the show. We appreciate it so much. It does. And I have to say, when I read Real Bad Donkey's review, uh-huh. <laughs> they cracked me up with their comment on the juice review there's a there's a weird review uh-huh. <laughs> that's titled i'm gonna have it juiced and it's just like word salad <laughs> oh okay <laughs> and uh yeah real bad donkey commented on it and said is that person okay <laughs> i laughed out loud when i read that oh yeah. i love that i, love I don't that. know if that person is okay or not but they gave us three stars, so I'll take it. <laughs> yes. Thank you. We'll give them a thank you and add them to the prayer list. Hang on a second. <laughs> They're on the prayer list. Yeah. <laughs> also, I wanted to say, please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602 <laughs> And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, join us on Patreon, where we have literally hundreds of hours of bonus content. And we have a video club for 12 plus patrons where you can interact with us in person. That's right. We got one coming up on the 27th. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're watching The Stroll. Well, we got a new Patreon. A new Yay. Patreon. Thank you, Rachel S., for supporting our show. Yeah, thank you. And here's a personal thank you. <clears throat> what you got? I got nothing but love for you, Rachel. Uh-huh. Yeah, whatever. I got nothing but love for you, Rachel. What you got? I got nothing but love for you. Yeah, whatever. 
I also wanted to shout out our fruity Bert in Brazil. Oh. And Bert reads Chinese and Japanese. He's helped right. us out in the past on some of these, sometimes these cases with BIPOC killers in other countries, parts of the world. The facts get lost in translation. Just the publications and articles are in one language. Beth and I speak another. And some things get lost. And so he gave us a bunch of notes. Like, for example, the brother-in-law of Matsunaga. Matsunaga and uh, Ogata. Yes, was a police officer. Oh, wow. And that police officer eventually joined Matsunaga what? to help torture the family. Uh, nothing I read was in there like that. <laughs> yeah. That's nuts. I put everything he said in a folder in our files. Okay. Maybe we'll do an update someday. I think we might need to because he gave us so much. He said... We did say that the home was remodeled, right. but specifically he found that the brother-in-law police officer guy helped retile the bathroom floor to eliminate evidence. Oh my God. And then he also added that one of the surviving sons has a YouTube channel. Oh, wow. And it sounded wow. like there might be a little bit of concern for this young man's current yeah. well-being. Yeah. But we appreciate you so much, Bert. We love you all the way down there in Brazil. And it was just so nice to hear from him. So yeah. hip hop your horns for Bert. Yeah, thank you, Bert. All right. Well, let's take a quick break and then we'll get into the story when we come back. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule, history so interesting, it's criminal. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. All right, we're back. Remind us, Beth, who are we talking about? Today we're talking about Andre Crawford, a black man convicted for the murders of 11 women in Englewood, Illinois, and they were committed during a six-year period in the 90s. So it's love and light time. We would like to say rest in power to the victims in this case, and we'd also like to send love and light to those who survived. Yeah. And the community, this is a really horrific case. And I can yeah. just imagine. So the people left behind, the community members. Yeah, how members, many people were affected. Yeah, yeah. Love and light to everybody. The victims are as follows. Patricia Dunn, 37. Angela Shatine, 36. Nicole Townsend, 32. Evandre Harris, 44. Cheryl Cross, 38. Cheryl Johnson, 44. Shawanta Langley. Tommy Dennis. Sanji Brandon, 31, Constance Bailey, 41, Rhonda King, 18, 
And Claudia Robinson was 42 years old and she survived this ordeal by playing dead, I think. Yes. So now we're going to get into all of the details. But again, rest in power to those queens. And let's get into the setting, Beth. Well, here we go. The setting is Englewood, which is actually part of Chicago. (laughs) Englewood is located on the south side of Chicago. And just north of Englewood is New City. Um, I think there was a couple of murders that happened in New City. Okay. But they are both in the Southside District. Okay. Originally, the area was an oak forest with swampland. Chicago is built on land that was home to various Native American tribes for hundreds of years. Some people believe the city's name comes from the Algonquin people who called the river on which it sits Chicago after the wild leeks that grew along its shore. Are leeks garlic? Because one source said wild garlic. Is it the yeah, same thing? Yeah, some of them said onions. I think they're garlic or onion-like. Uh, <laughs> I'm, oh. I'm not sure if, they, <laughs> if they're actually, yes, garlic and onion adjacent. Because I okay. don't think they're actually like the leeks that we think of mm-hmm. when we think of leeks. Girl, but... I don't even know what a leek is. <laughs> <laughs> I know that if I have one in my bathroom, it's a problem. Okay. <laughs> so a leek looks like, you know, green onions. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But okay. really big. Really I've seen big. them in Hello Fresh. Thanks, Hello Fresh, for, yeah. me, for sending us <laughs> green onions. Now I know. Yeah, and they they have a garlic onion flavor. So oh, I think okay. they didn't know what to call these things because I don't think they're actually leeks, but they're mm-hmm. like native to the area, and so they call you them. You mean wild. to tell leeks, me when the colonizers came and they found something that was capable of seasoning and spicing their food? They didn't know what to call it. Yeah, wow, probably. Wow, says a lot. <laughs> uh, so these <laughs> Chicago grew along its shore. Although there are other versions of how Chicago got its name, everyone seems to agree that it's derived from a Native American word. Jean-Baptiste Point de Sable is known as the founder of Chicago. He was a Black pioneer trader and founder of the settlement that later became the city of Chicago in the 1770s. I didn't realize Chicago was settled. Oh, well, and they also erase Jean-Baptiste. There's a lot of erasure about his heritage. Right. They're quiet about his African ancestry. Yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> I imagine so. Yeah. So Jean-Baptiste's wife was Kitty Hawa and was a Potawatomi woman. Through bloody conflicts and unfair treaties that ceded their land to Europeans, Native Americans were almost entirely removed from the region. Afterwards, Chicago did not have a significant Native presence for over 100 years. It was 100% indigenous. And then there was 0%. Yeah. Wow. But in the 1950s, the federal government enacted a new policy to address what it saw as the quote-unquote Indian problem. You know, it's going to be a problem when they say Indian problem. Yeah. 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 And horrific. Yes. So this policy was one in a long line of disastrous and discriminatory policies that have removed Native Americans from their land and led to high rates of poverty and otherwise disadvantaged and disenfranchised them. The Indian Relocation Act of 1956, and I'm doing a double take, 1956? We were still doing Mm -hmm. it? Okay. Sought to disperse Native Americans into cities from their reservations by ending federal recognition of many tribes and discontinuing federal funding for many of the reservation's services, such as schools and hospitals. So just destroying them again. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. 
Okay. While the government paid to relocate Native Americans and provided some vocational training, many Native Americans struggled to find work and adapt to an urban lifestyle. Chicago was one of the relocation cities, so quite a few Native folks from all across the country ended up there. And that's why the American Indian Center was founded, to provide both social services and a gathering place for people faced with drastic and overwhelming life changes. The American Indian Center, founded in 1953, is the oldest urban Indian center in the country. In recent years, it has scaled back the social services and focused more energy into its educational efforts such as an after-school program and land-based education involving community gardens on common themes instead of specific tribal traditions. The AIC also organizes events that allow tribes to share their distinct traditions with each other and educational outreach to non-Native peoples. Today, Chicago has the third largest urban Native American population in the United States, with more than 65,000 people of Native American heritage from 175 different tribes living in the greater metropolitan area. In 1852, several railroad lines crossed at a place that became known as Junction Grove, or the Junction, and a passenger station was built there. This was the beginning of Englewood. The earliest European settlers to Englewood were German and Irish immigrants working on the railroads and at the stockyard. The area was annexed by the city of Chicago in 1889. By 1914, Chicago's largest outlying shopping district developed around 63rd and Halstead Streets in Inglewood. <laughs> in 1930, almost 90,000 people called Inglewood home. I'm not going to stop doing that. Also, by 1940, Inglewood was predominantly a black neighborhood. <laughs> The neighborhood is roughly three square miles and is in between South 59th Street and South 71st Street. We've talked about redlining before, but here's a refresher. Redlining is the practice of determining eligibility for loans based on geographic location. It's rooted in racial discrimination and furthering segregation. Neighborhoods are graded A through D and by color coding. Green slash A grade is the best and safest. That's where all the white people live. That's where all the whites live. Blue, B grade, still safe. Yellow is a C grade, a little bit riskier. And red is a D grade and is very risky. Too many blackies there. Englewood was graded red or D for very risky. Redlining was very closely correlated with increasing segregation in the city. Starting in the 1930s, when the redlining maps were first published, there was a 6.6 gap in the percentage of Black residents living in the areas designated as yellow and red. By 1940, this percentage rose to 7.7 and continued to rise to 11% by 1950. So these stats are real numbers, and I'm, yeah. I'm often blown away by people who don't believe that context matters when we talk yeah. about the history of this case. Yeah. This is what caused this neighborhood to become all black. Disenfranchised. Yeah. yeah. Disenfranchised, under-resourced, over-policed. All these things are important to note. So hopefully we can fucking fix them. Yeah. You know, redlining increased wealth disparities between majority and minority neighborhoods, and its aftermath has never been fully remedied. Some policies enacted later in the 20th century, such as the Fair Housing Act of 1968 and the Community Reinvestment Act of 1977, supported the most economically struggling areas. 
but not enough to restore them to the pre-redlining era. In 1960, Englewood had 67,000 Black residents who made up about 69% of its population. According to the Chicago Metropolitan Agency for Planning, between 2000 and 2017, Englewood experienced a population drop of approximately 38%. Mm. That is a lot. Yeah. Today, the population is about 24,000 and Englewood is approximately 91% Black. A little teeny culture corner in these redlined areas, the legacy of the redlining continues in health. Zip codes in Englewood, residents in Englewood have more health issues and shorter life expectancies than white people who live in more suburban areas. Right. So it's, you know, it's not just, I wish I lived in a nice house. It's it's a lot more deep than that. Yeah. So in the 90s, there were a lot of abandoned buildings in Englewood. This is during the crack era, by the way. And Chicago was in the middle of an unprecedented crime wave. A second serial killer, Hubert Gerald, was also active at the same place and the same time. And one of Crawford's victims was initially attributed to Gerald's. But we'll get into that later. I always think it's wild when there's more than more one than serial one. killer in one yeah. area. You're telling me. <laughs> like, <laughs> do they have meetings? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, always, I do wonder, though. Anyway, let's get into the early life of Andre Crawford. Hit it, Beth. Andre Crawford was born in Chicago on March 20th, 1962. His father left the family shortly after his birth. According to Crawford, his childhood was filled with sexual abuse and neglect. Andre and his sister were placed in foster care as infants after authorities found them living alone in squalor. They were found underfed, dehydrated, and covered in sores and filth. That's really awful. Awful, yeah. Their mother admitted to authorities that she sometimes left them unattended for long periods of time. Babies. But sometimes, you know, if you're a single mom and you have to work, I can imagine childcare is difficult. Yeah. And nobody cares that you have children that need to be taken care of. Yeah. So it might not have been entirely nefarious, her leaving her kids alone. It could have been, but we don't know. Is yeah, what I wanted we don't to say. know. Yeah. Yeah. So he spent most of his childhood in a foster home on the south side where he said that he was molested for years by an older girl who was also a foster child in the home. When he ran away and sought out his mother's family, he said they sex trafficked him. Mm. But this is uncorroborated, and his mother's relatives deny the accusation. However, an investigator for his later defense testified that she found a history of violence, incest, and mental illness in Crawford's extended family. Crawford began using drugs as a teenager, and as a result, he dropped out of school at the age of 17. In the early 80s, Crawford enlisted in the Army and later the Navy, but continued to use drugs. During this time, he was constantly disciplined, and he was eventually dishonorably discharged and returned to the South Side. Crawford occasionally worked for the Chicago Sun-Times as a temporary worker, hired out for occasional shifts as a helper on delivery trucks. He would also sometimes go door to door, offering to do small jobs for cash. He was well known in Inglewood and new city communities where he often ate, drank and socialized and was known as Dre. Nowadays, everybody want to talk like they got something to say. But if it comes out when they move the lips, just a bunch of gibberish. So fuck all that because they forgot about Dre. Anyway, go ahead. Sorry. He frequented soup kitchens and food pantries and handed out metal slugs that would work as good as quarters at the laundromat. Oh. At times, he slept at shelters or friends' houses, but more often, he slept outdoors or in abandoned buildings. 
According to a former friend of Crawford's, quote, he was a mild-mannered guy. He never degraded women or said anything that would make you think he was violent. He was a nice guy, unquote. One article described him as, quote, a friendly sort who never turned down good barbecue or cokey malt liquor, unquote. Have you ever heard of that before? No, I haven't. I haven't either. I had to look up malt liquor because I didn't really know what it was. Uh Okay, well, I know what malt liquor is. I just never heard of the cokey brand. It could be an East Coast thing. And I'm new here. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So have you had malt liquor before? Of course. It's cheap and it gets the job done. Okay. I was reading it's like sweeter than uh, beer. Can be. Can be. Okay. Um, Let me think. Higher alcohol content. That's it. That's why I enjoy it. People drink it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could get a 40 of like Old English or Steel Reserve for like $2.50. And in college, you know, that, that was it. <laughs> that was plenty. <laughs> you know, my nickname was 40 in college because I drank a lot of malt liquor 40s. And now look at me. It ruined my life. Just kidding. <laughs> and that's why you don't drink, kids. And that's why I don't drink like that anymore. <laughs> so another man said, quote, everybody knew Dre. We used to play dominoes together, eat barbecue, and he used to be out here drinking beer all the time. He seemed like a normal person to me, unquote. Mmm, playing dominoes. Beth, do you know how to play dominoes? I do, yeah. <gasps> what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I have played it before. Oh, Quite a while what? ago, so okay. I, I would need a refresher, probably. Oh, my God. Well, I guess I'm going to bring my Uno and my dominoes, dominoes to Crime yeah. Here we go. So, <laughs> back to Andre. So sorry. His ordinary demeanor allowed him to blend easily into the community. Crawford participated in Operation Safe Passage, which was sort of like a neighborhood watch program where adults would escort children through dangerous neighborhoods to school and stuff like that. He also helped police pass out flyers seeking information on serial killings. And I believe that some of the flyers might have had his picture on them. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's nuts. (laughs) So between March 1993 and November 1999, Crawford was repeatedly arrested on multiple charges, including felony theft, attempted sexual assault, and possession, once spending over a year in the Cook County Jail for sexual assault. The charges were dropped the following year when the victim failed to appear in court. People in the neighborhood who knew the woman said she had a hard time getting people to believe her story because she used drugs, Uh, which is not a reason. No. Does not discount what happened to somebody. Yeah. But the woman ended up moving from the neighborhood rather than going to court. Mm. So now let's get into the timeline. What do you got, Beth? Crawford killed women after luring them to secluded areas with deals to swap drugs for sex. The victims were all black women and most of them were murdered after Crawford became angry when the women wanted to get high before sex or decided to leave the situation before the deal went down. He actually knew most of them Mm. and had known them for years. Most of the victims were strangled and beaten. Crawford also sexually assaulted the victims after they were dead. That's what we would call necrophilia, right? Yes. Oh, do you have yes. to cry? Thank yes. you. So on September 23rd, 1993, a building inspector monitoring an abandoned property in Chicago's South Side stumbled upon the dead body of a woman on a loading dock and called the police. The victim was naked from the waist down and had abrasions and defensive wounds on her hands. 
Investigators were struck by the fact that her face, which had been brutally beaten, was covered by a cloth. A burlap bag was found under her body. Investigators also observed that while the rest of the victim's clothes were at the scene, her shoes were missing. Police suspected that she had been sexually assaulted. The medical examiner, however, found no evidence of rape. Major damage to head and face indicated that she'd been brutally beaten. And there's got to be something about the brutality and then covering up the face, right? Yes, it's shame. So using fingerprints, police identified the victim as 37-year-old Patricia Dunn, who lived in Englewood. Her loved ones described her as very happy, very loving, elegant, classy, and a role model. Patricia was considered the glue in her family, and she was raising six children who were not her own. Patricia also had a lot of friends, and they were very forthcoming. They wanted to help police find her killer. Police combed the area for leads, but with no witnesses, DNA evidence, or fingerprints left by the assailant, the case went cold. On December 21st, 1994, an individual who was renovating a boarded-up building found 18-year-old Rhonda King's partially skeletonized body on the third floor. Rhonda's body was unclothed except for a coat and cushion covering her head. The body was in a bad state of decomposition, and the medical examiner could find no obvious signs of trauma. However, a bloodstain had been found about two feet from Rhonda's head, and there appeared to be bloodstains on her clothing. She was identified through an ID card. The cause of death was listed as undetermined. Police suspected that foul play had been involved, but absent any evidence, the case went cold. On April 3, 1995, kids exploring an abandoned house a few blocks from the Patricia Dunn crime scene discovered a woman's body. Like Patricia, the victim was nude below the waist, and her face, which had been severely battered, was covered, this time with a blanket. An electrical cord was wrapped around her neck, and there was bruising on her forehead and left eye. Her shoes were missing, but her other clothes were found in the room. A Chicago police detective said the similarities to Patricia Dunn's case were quote-unquote striking. As police worked the scene, the body was sent to the medical examiner, who determined that the victim had been strangled to death and sexually assaulted. She was identified by her fingerprints as Angela Shatine, 36, nicknamed Angel. Despite the fact that DNA had been recovered from her body, the case went cold. introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. Type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy and you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. 
So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts, people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh You go home, and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. On June 19, 1995, police interviewed Hubert Geralds, the other serial killer working in the same area, who at the time was in custody for six murders. Geralds was shown a photograph of Rhonda King. Geralds said that Rhonda was one of the women that he strangled and killed, and he provided a written statement to that effect. He was later convicted of her murder and sentenced to death, but that conviction was vacated in 2000. Two years after Angela's body was found on Thanksgiving Day 1997, Claudia Robinson, 42, left her family's Thanksgiving dinner with her sister, and the two of them went to a friend's house. Claudia later left alone and headed for a bus stop. According to Claudia, as she was walking, she was approached by a man who started a conversation and then forced her by knife point into an abandoned building. The man made her remove her clothes and then raped her while holding a knife to her throat. Claudia said that she grabbed the knife, cutting her fingers. The blade broke free of the handle and she threw the blade. The man then wrapped what Claudia believed to be a telephone cord around her neck and Claudia lost consciousness. When she regained consciousness, she heard the man walk up to her and say, quote, Oh, you one of them bad bitches, unquote. Oh. He then took a two-by-four and struck her repeatedly about the head. Oh my. Claudia used her hands to try to block the blows, and the beating removed the skin from the top of her hands. She heard her leg breaking <gasps> as the man struck her. Oh, my So it was God. vicious. It was oh. a vicious beating. Oh, my gosh. Yes, it sounds like it. Claudia played dead, and the perpetrator threw a mattress over her body and took her shoes. She was able to drag herself out of the building and screamed for help. She survived, thankfully, Yeah. but she required 52 stitches to her head. Her cheekbone was broken and her arms, legs and wrists were all broken. She was hospitalized for three months and her legs were so badly shattered that she spent the next four months learning how to walk again. That's amazing that she was able to drag herself out of the building. It is. I don't know how she did that unbelievable angels were i don't even know how you explain it but golly it's amazing that she survived yeah Yeah. so a rape kit was performed and dna was found that matched genetic material found on angela claudia described her attacker to police as a black male who was about six feet tall and she helped detectives create a composite sketch which they distributed around the neighborhood and uh, Crawford. He was helping. Probably helped. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh did you see? Gosh. Did you watch Mark of a Serial Killer or Mark of a no, Killer? No, was there an episode on this yeah, guy? Yeah, on this no, guy. No, I did not. Yeah, so they showed the composite, mm-hmm. and it was like a black spot. <laughs> what? Like, yeah, what? I couldn't. 
I could not oh see any of the God. features. <laughs> wow. <laughs> see, this representation matters. Even yeah. even BIPOC people should be part of those teams that are putting together these composite these sketches. sketches. Because, yeah. Yeah. The, the features might be turned into a blob from yeah, somebody. Yeah, basically who, it was a blob. Yeah. Yeah. That is so interesting well uh I, did it help let's uh, find out no it didn't help because oh. <laughs> crawford was passing him out <laughs> he's like that nope, is that so... doesn't look anything like me <laughs> want a flyer <laughs> so <laughs> according to the police detectives worked diligently to forge a relationship with locals including sex workers gang members and others they believed someone out there could have a clue, but progress on the case was minimal for nine months. Then on August 13th, 1998, the bodies of two women were found on the same day what? in two abandoned buildings located about a mile apart. Mm. That's wild. Yeah. Nicole Townsend, 32, and Evandre Harris, 44, had been beaten. Their faces were covered and their shoes were nowhere to be found. Can you imagine how just terrifying it would have been to be in Englewood or the South Side at this time with all of this? Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, we talked about what the community was like due to, to redlining. So people are under resourced, over policed, but also don't trust the police. And these bad things are happening and the police are coming in claiming to want to help solve the murder. But murders. you don't trust them. Right. But and, you don't trust yeah. them. So it's just like, just Ugh, terrifying. You're, it, damned yeah. if you do, damned if you don't is the best way I can describe yeah, what yeah, that might that's feel pretty like. Accurate. Autopsy revealed that Nicole Townsend had died of strangulation. Her body was in an advanced state of composition. So DNA was not found on her body, but was found on a piece of pantyhose located close to her body. DNA was found on the body of Avandre Harris, and the DNA from both victims matched genetic evidence recovered from Claudia Robinson and Angela Shatin. So they're matching the DNA to all these bodies. Yes. But my understanding is that they're matching DNA finally in 1998, but they had his DNA earlier than that. They just didn't put it into the system to like CODIS. Is that what it's called? Yeah, but I didn't read that. Oh. What I read was that he was arrested multiple times, but they never took his DNA. Oh, they didn't collect it at all. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's even more fucked up. Jesus. Yeah. Didn't anybody see Jurassic Park in 1994? <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I would have. I don't understand why everybody was like, DNA, 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 <laughs> solving all these crimes. Actually, it was pretty new in the 90s. It was like the late 80s was when they first started using DNA. Mm -hmm. And so in the 90s, it was pretty new technology. And it took a while before it really caught on. Yeah, I understand that. And I, I also understand that it had to be explained to juries. Like if, yeah. it, did, if it was used they, in a They in didn't case. always trust it. Yes, yeah. exactly. Because it was when, new. Again, did you not see the hit <laughs> Jurassic Park? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I'll trust anything that could get me a dinosaur. So uh, on December 8th, 1998, the body of Cheryl Cross, 38, was found in the attic of an abandoned home. She was naked from the waist down, and she had substantial injuries to her face, including a laceration across her forehead and loose teeth around her body. Yeah. The bones in Cross's forehead and nose were fractured. 
She also had substantial injuries to her skull and scalp. A section of rope was still around Cheryl's neck and a knife blade was lodged in her back. She had abrasions on the right side of her neck, the left side of her face, and on her right knee. The cause of death was determined to be a stab wound to the back with blunt force trauma to the head, a significant contributing factor. A section of two by four was found underneath Cheryl's body and another piece to the right of her head. On the second floor, an investigator found another knife with an alligator logo on the handle, which was later tied to Crawford. And again, DNA evidence was found which matched the other victims. On April 20th, 1999, around midnight, a Chicago police officer went into a boarded-up abandoned home for the purpose of conducting narcotic surveillance. As he was clearing the location, he saw a body by the light of his flashlight. The victim was Cheryl Johnson, 44. Like the other victims, she was naked below the waist, and her shoes were missing, and DNA matched that found on the other women. The cause of death was determined to be manual strangulation. In June of 1999, the body of Constance Bailey, 41, was found in an abandoned tire shop. She was known on the streets as Tiny and Shorty. Three other women were murdered, Tommy Dennis, Sonia Brandon, and Shaquanta Pumpkin Langley. But we were unfortunately unable to find information about those women. Yeah, and I, I really tried. I couldn't yeah, find I always try. I always go to Legacy yeah. to see... And it's Google it's their hard. names and, and it, yeah, yeah, it starts with an R and ends with yeah. a, yeah. Yeah. Because it also you know, costs money. You guys to, know the rest. <laughs> you, you know the deal. It yeah. costs money to do an like an obituary in the newspaper, right? Yeah. yeah. Not everybody has those resources as, yeah. as um, maybe as simple as it sounds to us who have the means to pay for something to go in the newspaper. It's, it's not yeah. free. Even so, even if it's like I can't remember how much it costs. It's not that much, but even twenty five dollars to a person who doesn't have much mm-hmm. is it might as well be a thousand dollars. Exactly, it's, it's a lot of money for somebody exactly. who doesn't have much. Thank yeah. you. That's my friend over Been there. Been there, done that. Yeah. <laughs> yep. 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 <laughs> In June of nineteen ninety nine, Chicago lab serologist Denise Troche decided to test the burlap bag found underneath the body of Patricia Dunn for semen. It tested positive and DNA was extracted, which matched the DNA found on the other victims. Mm, 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 mm. I love it. Out of the 11 women killed, seven of them had DNA in some fashion. The one survivor, Claudia Robinson, also had DNA. So in eight of the 12 cases, DNA evidence tied the victims to a single male suspect. So now let's get into the investigation and the arrest. Hit it, Beth! (laughs) (laughs) With the murder count rising, the FBI got involved with the case and a joint task force was formed, comprised of officers and agents of the Chicago Police Department and the FBI. The community was on high alert and held meetings to discuss the case. Crawford went to the community meetings, motherfucker, where police and residents discussed the Southside killings and the police investigation. And, as we mentioned earlier, he helped police pass out flyers seeking information on the murders. That is so nasty. And this <laughs> is not the first guy that we've covered who did this kind of thing. And I just hate it so Yeah, much. I was just thinking of the guy who went to a barbecue. Yeah, people yeah. were fixing plates. Get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck out of here. What the? Oh, my God. The Chicago Police Department, as part of the task force, continued to canvas the neighborhood. 
where they took DNA swabs of men who agreed to give a sample voluntarily. They collected more than 500 DNA samples this way, but there was no match. Two women came forward with a tip about a man who went by the name Dre, who was known for getting violent with women in abandoned buildings. Another person told police about a man called Andre, who'd get high with sex workers in empty buildings. So the streets were talking. Yeah, the streets were talking. Another woman told police that she'd known Andre since 1992, when she was making a living swapping sex for drugs. At the time, she lived with a man who allowed crack users to get high in his apartment. Crawford was a regular there, as were Patricia Dunn, Tommy Dennis, Sonia Brandon, Constance Bailey, Cheryl Johnson, and Pumpkin Langley, six of the 10 women who were murdered. Wow. That is more than a coincidence. Yeah, you say? definitely. Got him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this woman who knew Andre Crawford, she -hmm. started to suspect that he was one of the Southside killers. Mm -hmm. In December of 1999, he sat behind her on a bus and told her the victims (gasps) deserved to die. Oh, she remembered him saying, quote, they need to be strangled and have their heads beaten in, unquote. Wow. Yeah. Okay. well, uh, (laughs) congratulations. You played yourself. Yeah. Take that man to jail right now. (laughs) Investigators identified their suspect as Andre Crawford, who was from the area and had been incarcerated for drug and sexual assault arrests. Police created a timeline of when Crawford was in lockup and a pattern emerged. When he was behind bars, the murder stopped. When he was out, they started back up again. Wow, they did it. Way to go, Chicago PD. (laughs) According to investigators, that was their aha moment. These people. Okay. (laughs) This is 10 years in now. (laughs) 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 Crawford was arrested on January 28, 2000 on an unrelated matter and brought in for questioning. And he subsequently agreed to submit a DNA sample after police informed him that they had a court order. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) then he began confessing. Ah, he spent three days confessing to the killings, which included murders that police hadn't yet linked to the case. Crawford told police that he exchanged drugs for sex. After taking his victims to abandoned buildings, if the women either backed out of the deal or demanded the drugs first, he became angry and violent. Crawford stabbed, beat, or strangled them, then raped them as they lay dying and again after they were dead. Mm. After disposing of their clothes, he often took a walk, smoked cocaine, then returned to have sex with the bodies again. He stated that he enjoyed having sex with dead bodies. Crawford routinely took his victim's shoes and he told police that he did this so they could not detect his fingerprints on them. Hmm. Uh, What about all the other places? Yeah, I don't buy that. Yeah, but he did not graduate from high school. So anyway. um, (laughs) True. And then he sold them on an Inglewood street corner. He said that he sold one pair of designer shoes worn by Sanji Brandon for $20. So I think he took the victim's shoes as trophies. But since he didn't have a place to live, then he would uh, eventually sell them. Right. That makes sense. Yeah, I think he got a kick out of keeping their shoes. Something about the shoes he really liked. Yeah, there's a lot of things that, you know, it's not my thing. But you know what? 
Yeah, it's just not my none of none of uh, Crawford. None of any of this is your thing. thing. Yeah, <laughs> I was gonna say I love that for you, Crawford, but I don't. Actually. No, I hate I that for you. I hate it. I hate it all, <laughs> and I hate you, Crawford. <laughs> so Crawford also confessed to the murder of Rhonda King, and his version of events matched the crime scene. He confessed to eleven murders in all, and his DNA physically linked him to seven of those crimes. Crawford's lawyers maintain that he made the confession after police threatened to place him in a jail cell with rival gang members, then provided him with drugs and allowed him to get high, mm, which okay. it's a Chicago PD. I wouldn't yeah. put it past him. Just saying. Yeah, but he's guilty. He is. Totally. <laughs> totally. But also the Chicago PD is guilty Sucks. of slippery yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm an American vigilante. I have a question for you. What would you do if someone you cared about was abducted, taken from you? Would you call me? Would you care about how I got them back? Download. American Vigilante, now. Now let's dive into the trial, Beth. Splish splash. Crawford was charged with over 200 counts concerning the first degree murders and aggravated criminal sexual assaults of Cheryl Johnson, Tommy Dennis, Shaguanta Langley, Sonji Brandon, Cheryl Cross, of Andre Harris, Nicole Townsend, and Constance Bailey. That's a lot of charges. It almost yeah. reminds me of somebody in the news right now has a lot of felony charges. Oh, yeah. I wonder who. I think it's like 90 yeah. felony charges. It's, it's so crazy <laughs> that one person could have so many charges. Anyway, in addition, the state charged Crawford with three counts each for the first-degree murders of Patricia Dunn, Angela Shatine, and Rhonda King. He was not charged with their rapes because the statute of limitations for those crimes had expired by the time of his arrest. And I don't know if that's still the case with rape. Yeah, I don't know. They, they've been changing longer. the laws yeah. recently, so it might not be. Yeah. Got it. Finally, the state charged Crawford with 17 counts related to the aggravated criminal sexual assault and attempted murder of Claudia Robinson. The parties agreed to join the 12 cases for trial before a single jury. The hunt for an Inglewood serial killer made headlines in the late 1990s, but quickly disappeared from public consciousness after Crawford's arrest in January 2000. It wasn't until nine years later and more than 16 years after his first victim was found that Crawford went on trial. That is a long time. Yeah. Weird to me because they have DNA evidence. So what are yeah, they? Very what weird. Else, I don't what know. What do they need all that time to prepare for? But I don't know. So few, if any, of the 100 prospective jurors seemed to recognize his name as the charges against him were read in court. Over the course of the nearly month-long trial that began in November of 2009, 
About 90 witnesses testified and approximately 450 exhibits were admitted. Jurors heard that DNA evidence linked him to seven of the dead as well as to the survivor. The other bodies were so badly decomposed that no DNA could be recovered. They viewed dozens of grisly photos of the victims after they were found. The jurors also watched videotape statements in which Crawford confessed to all 11 murders and rapes, as well as the assault on Claudia Robinson. The defense tried to raise doubt about the prosecution's case by highlighting that another man was previously convicted and sentenced to death for the 1994 murder of Rhonda King. Charges against that man, Hubert Geralds, were dropped after Crawford's arrest in January 2000. Crawford's defense team suggested that Crawford was coached into confessing to King's murder, which, I mean, he wasn't, possible, but... but the Chicago PD <laughs> did do that yeah. and would torture black men yeah. by putting cattle prods on their genitals and poison in their nose and take them to the train tracks. It was a whole organized thing. So, yeah, yeah we know they did this, it, but this in happens, this case, but in this <laughs> yeah. case, um, yeah, he's yeah. guilty. <laughs> yes. But Crawford was found guilty of 11 murders, nine rapes, and an attempted murder. As the verdicts were announced, relatives of the victims cried quietly and hugged, passing tissues to each other. No one was there for Crawford, who showed no emotion as he sat at the defense table. In mitigation, Dr. John Fabian, a forensic neuropsychologist who evaluated Crawford, found that his mother was negligent and abusive, and he theorized that, quote, he wanted to make these women suffer because that's what he wanted to do to his mother, unquote. Mm. Covering victims' faces could indicate shame or regret. Crawford's attorney, Deborah Seaton, said that it was no wonder his view of women was twisted, and quote, the story of his childhood is not an excuse for killing these women, but the story of his life at least gives a framework to understand how this man came to this place. If we look at the types of women that were killed, they were exactly like his mother, unquote, prompting half a dozen of the victim's relatives to stomp out of the courtroom. Yeah, that's that mm -hmm. wasn't cool. Yeah, it would definitely be offensive to yeah. to hear about yeah. your, your, your your family member. Yes. I know that she's tr not trying to say they deserve it. But it sounds like that. It does, kind of. Yeah. yeah. Or, or, you know, his mom was not great and these victims were not great either, you know? Yeah, yeah. It was offensive. It's reductive. Yeah, yeah. and offensive. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Assistant state attorneys James McKay and George Canellis countered that Crawford's allegations of childhood abuse were nothing more than uncorroborated tales from a man facing death for crimes that terrorized Chicago's new city and Englewood neighborhoods for much of the 1990s. Canellis said that even after his arrest in 2000, Crawford continued to prey on the week in Cook County Jail, allegedly raping a cellmate. No. Wow. Uh. The jury found him to be eligible for the death penalty, but did not impose it. The vote had to be unanimous in order to impose the death penalty, and it was not. He was instead sentenced to life imprisonment. So now let's get into where are they now? Tell us, Beth. Well, D-E-A-D -E dead. Ah, <laughs> good riddance. Yeah, good riddance. Crawford died in prison on March of 2017 from liver cancer two days before he would have turned 55. Wow. Yeah. 
Well, let's get into our takes. What are your thoughts on this one, Beth? Well, one of the most well-known cases out of Chicago is of John Wayne Gacy. Ever heard of him? Girl, who? (laughs) (laughs) I'm just kidding. (laughs) Yeah, he's infamous. Uh, But I never even heard of this guy. Ah. And, you know, there's some pretty gory details in this case yeah yeah and salacious so I, that would have salacious, sold newspapers, yes. lots of newspapers that would have gotten a lot of attention so yeah it, yeah. Is, it is interesting we didn't we didn't hear it about is him. and i wonder mm-hmm. why <laughs> <laughs> does it start with an r and end with a yes <laughs> <laughs> i don't really wonder why the killer and the victims were black and involved with drugs and sex work so nobody cared mm-hmm. they cared when there was a killer on the loose because they were scared, mm-hmm. but then promptly forgot about it when he was arrested. Uh, and like I mentioned before, it was extremely difficult to find any information about the victims. Mm-hmm. I looked all over the place. And that's what happens when a serial killer is forgotten about. The victims are forgotten about, too. Yes. And that's that's really sad. That is that's deep, friend. Yeah. yeah that's a, <laughs> that's I mean, it's it's it, to hear you say it out loud. It's like, oh, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Now, why he snapped? Well, again, he had a horrible childhood, or at least the beginning was. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how you recover from that level of neglect as a yeah. baby. Mm-hmm. That really fucks you up. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about his foster family. You know, he said that he was molested by another uh-huh. foster child, and that's mm-hmm. possible, mm-hmm. but people said there was no corroborating evidence Mm -hmm. but it's possible his whole childhood sucked so yeah Yeah. but he hated his mom hated her did yeah with good reason yeah Mm -hmm. and he was taking it out on these women yeah and the necrophilia i read somewhere that it's the ultimate control you have absolute control over the women's bodies and don't have to deal with a living person so it's a way to get close to somebody without having to face rejection or hurt yes Yes. or you know just deal with another person yeah has opinions so sick of these people and their (laughs) opinions and and emotions yeah (laughs) yeah so it's it's gross but um yeah that's what it's about i think Mm. yeah i thought so too and i agree he had an unfortunate childhood he didn't have his mom in his life and did seem to be very angry with her. This made me think of the Tupac song. And even as a crack fiend mama, y'all ways was a black queen mama. And in like the <laughs> same line, he is like, mom, I hate you, but also mom, love, I love you. you. Yeah, yeah. So it's a complicated relationship. We, and this- we all want our moms to love us. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And if they don't. Mm-hmm. then it's really it's really damaging to our psyches. Yeah, it is. It is and um clearly damaging to Crawford. Yeah. Because he and he not only did he hate women but disregard for human life. Yeah. And maybe this is a stretch but uh you know, a dead body can't abandon you. Yeah. Like his mother did. Right. You can abandon a dead body. Exactly. See, psychology, OG of true crime is teaching me things. So, you know, I wanted to touch on, we gave all those stats about the living conditions and why they are what they are. Yep. It should be no surprise that infant mortality rates in the United States for Black kids are very bad. Mm. And we're like supposed to be the richest country of the world. I know. But if they survive... In a place that is under-resourced and over-policed in a red-line city, 
then we also shouldn't be surprised if those kids end up with a poor quality of life, right. engaged in illicit drugs, committing crimes of survival, and end up incarcerated or dead. So we should be ashamed because that's essentially the situation that right. Crawford, but also the victims, found themselves in. Yeah. We're just throwing people away. We are. We are. Yeah. And it, it really, a lot of it depends on what you look like and your socioeconomic status. Yeah. DNA was new in the 90s, but yeah. the police didn't collect it, which I, to that, I say, fuck those messy ass hoes. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> this took place during the crack area. Crack devastated everyone in, in yeah. the communities that it touched. Crawford used crack cocaine and the victims did too. And crack, like other substances, are sometimes what people turn to when they are in pain or despair. Right, right. And also, I too thought it was wild. There was another serial killer operating at the same time. I feel for the community navigating the systems of, you know, white supremacy and oppression that contributed to the problem by looking the other way because of who the victims were. Yeah. And it's also interesting that there are some who believe that there's a serial killer active right now or at in least Chicago. A, uh, yeah. in Chicago a few years ago. Remember somebody came up to us at CrimeCon yep. and was like, and then we also talked to that guy who wanted to do like a TV show or something yeah. with us yeah. yeah, about this issue in Chicago, which if you're considering Crawford's time and today has not much has changed. The problem yeah. of missing and murdered black and brown women continues. And I think yeah. that's the saddest part of all. And I think there's something like 50 victims wow. in Chicago. Yeah. Wow. OK. Yep. Yeah. So, uh yeah, well, I'm sad again. So um, <laughs> you're welcome. <laughs> Thank you. So that's it for the story. Let us know what you thought. And now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So <clears throat> if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. <laughs> <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. What do you got, Beth? Well, I just found a few tips that were a little different. Okay. Very similar to the ones that we give out a lot. Yeah. But, uh, Good reminders. Yes, reminders. Okay. So the first one is keep your head up and out of your phone when you're walking. But then I might have to have uncomfortable conversations <laughs> and look people in the face. That's true. That's true. That is that is a risk. <laughs> but also learn how to use your phone safety features. If you go online and type in your phone model with the word safety features, then you can uh, learn all about those. Oh, yeah. Thank yeah. you. That's gold. Yeah. And then look for unusual situations or things that are out of place. Like when you're leaving work, mm -hmm. open the door and then scan the parking lot for anything weird before oh. letting the door shut behind you. Oh, I love that one. Thank you. And then this is all like when you're walking around. Okay. Keep your dominant hand empty and that side of your body unencumbered by purses, backpacks, or briefcases. Because pushing, striking, opening doors, etc., are things we tend to do with our dominant hand. Yes. So attempting to adjust using the weak hand in a crisis will lead to a delayed reaction or failure. failure. Yeah. Wow. Those are good, Beth. Thank, Thank you. you. I, <laughs> I feel safer already. <laughs> so there's a bunch of other tips on this page. I'll just put the link in our show notes. Okay, perfecta mundo. 
Now let's get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by or about people of color or any marginalized folks or any true crime goodies. This is kind of a double whammy. Okay. It's called whoop whoop. That's the sound of the police. Just kidding. It's just called Sound (laughs) Sound of the Police. The The title is, I think, a tribute to the KRS-One as a rapper. Have you heard of him, Beth? I haven't, but I know that. To his song, whoop, Yes. That's the sound of the police. Anyway. I know the song, yeah. Okay. (laughs) So um, I peppered a lot of hip-hop through this episode. So if it got on your nerves, I don't care. Anyways, uh, it's called Sound of the... Happy 50th anniversary, (laughs) hip-hop. Happy happy birthday, hip-hop. So it's called um, Sound of the Police. It's on Hulu. And the film traces the country's complex racial history that set the path for policing in black communities from the formation of slave patrols in the early 1700s, 1704 to be exact, to Jim Crow, to the uprisings against police brutality ever since to, I don't know, last week's, yeah, the last right time now. they, they killed somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I'm like halfway done, but I, I've listened to interviews all week with the director and the creator of the film oh is there a podcast or they were they've just been interviewed so they've made the rounds on like the pod save america oh okay pod save the people um so the interviews with the creators is what got me really interested and i'm loving it so far so nice mine what do you got i don't have a shout out this week but minnie does hey minnie (laughs) what's happening minnie wanted to shout out extraordinary birder with christian cooper it's good it's good watching it with my kids Nice. It's a National Geographic show hosted by a lifelong birder and a black man, mm-hmm. Christian Cooper, mm-hmm. who reveals the wild, wonderful, and unpredictable world of birds. And Minnie loves birds. So she does. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is exciting. <laughs> um, because I'm st- I, you know, I was afraid of birds. Yeah. I have two chickens in my house and bird feeders all over the place. And I'm starting you're to like getting, get to know birds. Oh, nice. They're amazing. Yeah. So uh, just to recap, that is The Sound of the Police on Hulu, as well as Extraordinary Birder with Christian Cooper. And that's on National Geographic. And I think you can watch it on Disney Plus, too. Okay. That's where I've been seeing it. So, oh, man. We're that's here. the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have to go. But in the meantime, Beth, where can the people find us? Our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all of our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways that you can support the show and become a Fruit Loops patron. You can also support us by supporting our sponsors or by giving us a five-star review. Five, five stars, stars only, only please! please. <laughs> <laughs> also, don't forget to subscribe. <laughs> well, uh, this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there.
my nickname was 40 in college because I drank <laughs> a lot of my liquor 40s. And now look at me. It ruined my life. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm sad again. So um, <laughs> you're welcome. That's why I don't drink like that anymore. <laughs> Tell him why, Beth. No, don't do it because that's my job. Oh, well, that's even more fucked up. Jesus. Yeah. Didn't anybody see Jurassic Park in 1994? <laughs> I'll trust anything that could get me a dinosaur. <laughs> I feel safer already. Crawford's None of like, any of this is your thing. thing. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, I love that for you, Crawford, but I don't. Actually. No. I hate <laughs> I that for you. I hate it. I hate it all. Did it help? Let's uh, find out. No. <laughs> all right. <laughs> oh, let me get myself together. Okay. Okay. Woosa. Oh, okay. My turn. That's it. Hit it, Beth. <laughs> I can't think of what else I <laughs> What do you do I use? Spl- oh, what splish the splash. Splash. Oh, what the <laughs> yeah. What the one? Splish splash. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I no just problem. my my mouth just stopped. What? <laughs> no. I think I read that wrong. Okay. Inglewood. <laughs> The FBI got involved in... Whoops, that was late. <laughs> Sorry. According to investigators... Investigators. Investigators. <laughs> messy hoes, yeah. <laughs> Ch- uh, oh, shit, Chicago. Uh, what, no, that's not what I say. You can't be stopped. I can't. <laughs> I just really need to go to sleep. Underfed, dehydrated. Underfed. Oh, underfed. I was like, oh, underfed. underfed. New word. <laughs> I don't know. Somebody said leak. You said leaks earlier, and I didn't know what that was. Inglewood. So before we nowadays, everybody want to talk like they got something to say, but nothing comes out when they move the lips. Just a bunch of gibberish. So fuck all that because they forgot about Dre. Anyway, but so oh, if nice. it got on your nerves, I don't care. <laughs> and even as a crack fiend mama, y'all ways was a black queen mama. That's the sound of the police. Just kidding. You know what? Thursday. Yeah. I'm not going to say any more words. I'm just going to okay. sleep. Okay. Right. Sounds Love good. Ya. Bye. Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.